Hi there. Welcome to Bond Investment Mentor. I'm your host, Chris Nelson, and this is a podcast dedicated to helping community financial institutions master the art of fixed income investments. If you're working for a community bank or credit union and you have responsibilities for the investment portfolio, you've come to the right place. I'll be your personal investment guide as we help you boost your fixed income investment knowledge, level up your portfolio management skills, and help you gain the know-how you need to help your institution achieve its financial goals. In this episode, we're going to talk about how to deal with information overload. It seems that it's becoming more and more difficult to manage all the stuff that's coming at you and cut through all the noise to find what's really helpful. I'm going to share with you the information management process I use to keep things under control so that you too can tame the information beast. So are you ready to do this? Then let's get started. Hey there, welcome to Bond Investment Mentor. I'm glad you stopped by. Since we last spoke, we've transitioned here in Maine from what I call the Great Hibernation to the Great Thaw as spring begins working its way in. While I don't mind the winter, I'm happy to see the milder weather and the longer days again for sure. And the better weather means that Bond Investment Mentor is getting ready to hit the road again. My calendar has been filling up with training and speaking appearances. Later this week, I'm speaking at a CEO roundtable event in Chicago. And then in May, I'm traveling to Denver to teach at the Community Bank Investment School hosted by the Graduate School of Banking in Colorado, which is a four-day program that'll help strengthen your investment and portfolio management skills. If you do want to learn more about that program, head over to bondinvestmentmentor.com forward slash Colorado for more information. I know that there are a few slots still available, but the program is filling up. So make sure you check that out soon. There's also more online training coming up, so no travel involved, as my next investment strategy workshop starts soon on Tuesday, April 18th. The community bankers that have attended recent workshops have enjoyed these sessions, and I really like the opportunity to work with a small group as we develop customized investment strategies for their institutions. Having an investment strategy that's built around your bank or credit union's balance sheet, risk exposures, and objectives is the one tool that can make all the difference. Trust me, I know because I've used it. And with such a plan in place, you can make investment decisions confidently and adapt quickly to changing interest rates and market conditions. And a solid investment strategy also helps when communicating with brokers and your institution's management, ALCO, board, and regulators. And who doesn't like that? If you don't have such a strategy or the one you have needs a little tuning up, my workshop will help get you on the right track and help you navigate your investment portfolio, your balance sheet, and the market while still having time for the rest of your day job. To register or learn more about this small group training opportunity, go to bondinvestmentmentor.com forward slash strategy, and I hope to see you there. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about information overload and how to manage it. We have so much information coming at us daily from the financial media, from brokers, economists, and from social media that it sometimes feels like we'll never get it under control. But I'm here to tell you there's hope. I'm going to share with you six steps that I use to tackle the information and reports I receive and how I stay on top of quality control in the process. I'm also going to share a quick update on the Texas Permanent School Fund story that I've been covering on the podcast. But first, I want to start with some info about the Federal Reserve's new liquidity program and a new resource that I've created for you. 
So as I'm sure you know, there's been a lot going on since the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in New York. Something that's gotten a lot of attention is the Federal Reserve's new funding option called the Bank Term Funding Program, or BTFP. In addition to being another source of liquidity for financial institutions, the BTFP has some very interesting characteristics that I think can be beneficial. Before I get into some of the details, let me start at the top. The Bank Term Funding Program is a collateralized funding program that's open to any U.S. federally insured depository institution or any branch or agency of a foreign bank eligible for the Fed's primary credit program. In addition, an institution needs to have already established a discount window account with their regional Federal Reserve Bank and file an email request using a template that the Fed provides you. Once the institution can participate, they can use U.S. government or agency-backed securities, such as treasuries, agency bonds, mortgage-backed securities, and CMOs, as collateral to draw down advances for terms of up to one year. And the rate is fixed, and it's based on the one-year overnight index swap rate, plus 10 basis points. Now, here's where it gets interesting. First, any collateral pledged will be valued at 100% of its par or face value not its market value. And there are no haircuts on the collateral, so you can borrow up to 100% of the collateral's par value. This is huge, especially given the loss of value experience because of last year's run-up in interest rates. For example, you could pledge $1 million in eligible securities with a market value of $850,000, but then take down a BTFP advance for $1 million based on the par value. Now, I'll tell you, no other program that I'm aware of lets you do this. So this is a huge plus. Another benefit is that once you've taken down a BTFP advance, you can prepay it without any penalty. That means that if interest rates decrease, you can effectively refinance your borrowing at a lower rate. And if rates increase, the fixed rate doesn't change. You're locked in. So you get the best of both worlds. Now, you've heard me talk about the concept of optionality here on the podcast, and this is one of those cases where optionality actually works in your favor because you own the option. Since the program began in March, more than $79 billion in advances have been taken down by financial institutions. Most of that happened in the first couple weeks of the program, and the amount of borrowings has slowed down a little over the past couple of weeks. If you're interested in digging down into the numbers, you can find the information available at the St. Louis Federal Reserve's FRED Economic Data Library. Just search for Bank Term Funding Program and it'll take you right to the data. Now, I have spoken with some community bankers who have been a little hesitant to take advantage of BTFP because of the perceived stigma of using the program. It's a similar perspective to using the discount window. Some people just aren't comfortable doing it. In my opinion, whether you use the program or not, it makes sense to have everything in place to use it just in case. While you may not want to utilize the bank term funding program now, you might feel a little bit differently in a liquidity emergency. So take the time to establish the necessary account at your regional Fed bank and consider pledging at least a small amount of collateral, even if you never use it. You'll be glad you took the time to prepare if things change. 
Now, to help you out, I've prepared a free guide to the Fed's bank term funding program. It serves two purposes. First, it's a handy reference for you with all the essential information about the program in one place. I like to keep it simple. In addition, it provides an easy-to-understand overview of BTFP that you can share with your management, your ALCO, or your board. To download your copy of the BTFP guide, head over to bondinvestmentmentor.com forward slash BTFP and you can grab your copy today. I want to update you about the latest news regarding the Texas Permanent School Fund. This will be of particular interest if you're investing in municipal bonds. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, the fund, also known as the PSF, provides a credit guarantee for municipal bonds issued by school districts in Texas. Now, last year, the PSF program began approaching its maximum capacity for bond coverage, and it's based on an old IRS limit that was created back in 2009. If the PSF were to hit the IRS cap, the fund would no longer be able to provide the credit enhancement that it gives for Texas school bonds. And this has saved school districts in the state a lot of money in interest expense over the years, given the permanent school fund's AAA-rated guarantee. The Texas PSF has been working on getting an answer and an increase to the cap for the last couple of years, but has yet to be successful. As a result, the fund has had to make other adjustments to allow it to provide credit enhancement coverage while remaining below its maximum capacity. So we've moved into the deck chair rearranging phase, basically. One way they did this was to cover new Texas school bonds as older muni issues matured, which freed up PSF capacity that could be reused at that point. In addition, the Texas State Board of Education voted earlier this month to reduce the amount set aside for reserves in the permanent school fund. And in doing that, they freed up about $6 billion in additional capacity in the process. The moves will allow the fund to continue providing guarantees for new Texas school district muni bonds to be issued for at least a bit longer. Juggling acts like these will need to continue until the IRS cap is raised. An alternative for school districts in Texas would be to seek alternative credit enhancements through bond insurance like other muni issuers do. Uh, Another option would be to go it alone and just issue the bonds based on the municipality's credit rating. But doing so would mean higher interest costs in many cases due to the lower credit ratings of the school districts when compared to the PSF AAA guarantee. So muni investors can still purchase AAA rated Texas PSF school bonds, at least for now. Hopefully the cap limit will be raised soon and the permanent school funds hoop jumping days will be over. Uh, I'll keep an eye out on things and I'll be sure to share any updates with you on this story. So for our main topic today, I wanted to share my response to a question I received from a listener. Matt from Mississippi wrote, Chris, where do you focus your attention when it comes to banking and market data? Candidly, I am inundated daily with information, and it's hard to separate the wheat from the chaff. Also, it seems there is so much out there that I miss a lot. So to boil it down, how and who do you prioritize related to industry news? What gets your attention, please? Well, first, Matt, thanks for your question. As you noted, it's essential to be able to sort through the information being thrown at you quickly. 
More importantly, how do you ensure that you're getting good information? In other words, how do you manage the quantity and the quality of the information you're receiving? I've talked with a number of community bankers about this over the years, and it's not just in banking either. Information overload has become an issue for many people, regardless of their job or field. In this information age, the good news is that there's a lot of information available. The bad news, you guessed it, there's a lot of information available. When it comes to managing the investment portfolio, I often hear about bankers feeling overwhelmed with all the information coming their way, whether it's financial news, economic data, broker ideas, or other investment or banking-related information. It just ends up being this tsunami of stuff that comes careening down on you. And what makes it more difficult is FOMO, or fear of missing out. I'm talking about the anxiety you feel because you're afraid that the information might come in handy later. So you hold on to it until your inbox, physical or online, whichever, finally collapses from everything that's in it. Or the information gets lost in the shuffle, meaning that you never read it in the first place. Or you can't locate the information or report you're looking for later when you want to recall or review it. So how do you make sense of it all? How do you cut through all the noise to find what's really important? And how do you know where to look when you're searching for information? The short answer is that it depends on how you manage the process. If you approach it more reactively, you'll continue to be inundated with reports, data, and information, which can feel overwhelming. And I know because this is how I was back in the day. I've been there and I know what it feels like to drown in a sea of noise and information. But I finally figured out a way to take back control. And I learned that by taking a more intentional approach. And by doing that, I was able to reduce the amount of stuff coming at me and to improve the quality of what I did receive. And that's what I want to share with you today. So here are six steps you can take to start taking control of the information overload process. Step number one is to determine what's in it for me or my institution. What do I mean by that? Well, this is the first question I ask myself when I'm reviewing information, particularly if it's sitting in my email inbox. If I can clearly answer how this information will benefit me or my institution, I will plan to continue reading it now or later. If I can't come up with an acceptable answer, there's a chance, very small, that I might consider setting it aside for when I have time later, kind of like a nice-to-have pile. More on that later. But most of the time, I just toss it and move on. Now, I'll admit, it was difficult to do that at first, but it got easier over time. I also reminded myself that in most cases, I could easily retrieve the information again later when I needed it. That's the nice thing about living in the information age. So taking that first step of determining what's in it for me or for my institution can usually cut down stuff pretty quickly. Step two is to skim the information first before you dive in. If I've decided that a piece of information is worth reading, the first thing I'll do is skim the information to gather the highlights and the key points. I usually will read the first paragraph or two. I'll quickly check any sub-headlines and bullet points, and then I'll take a look at the conclusion. Now, sometimes that's enough for me without reading the whole thing. So I'm done and I move on. Otherwise, it does give me enough familiarity so that I can read through the information more quickly when I dive into it. Step number three is learn to filter out the drama. 
One thing that I found important when analyzing information is to eliminate any drama, opinions, unless it's an opinion piece, makes sense then, right? Or agendas. I look for factual information and I leave behind everything else. This is especially important with information from brokers, but also applies to media reports and other resources. I always work my way back to the first point that I made. What's in it for me or my institution? That helps me stay on track and not get distracted by any unnecessary noise. Step four, this is a big one. Relentlessly manage your sources. As you may have experienced, the crushing wave of emails, reports, and messages is only made worse by information that doesn't help, is noisy, or is a waste of time. I recommend regularly reviewing your existing sources and culling those that aren't providing value. Just get rid of them. Don't be afraid to hit the unsubscribe button or ask to be removed from a distribution list. If the information is not helping, why keep cluttering your inbox with it? When it comes to adding sources, I'm always on the lookout for new people or organizations that will make me think and provide interesting and usable information. Some are media outlets, some are brokerage analysts, and some are online blogs or people in social media. I'll I'll give you a few examples here in a minute of resources that I'm following right now. Now, this is just a partial list because I could make this a very long podcast episode if I went through everything. So I apologize in advance if I've left something out. But here are some of the resources that I do use. I mean, first of all, there are the usual suspects like the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and Barron's. Uh, One thing I do there when I'm working on those websites, for example, is I will use the search function. I'm not going to sit there and scroll through every single story that's available. If I know there are certain topics that are important to me, I'll use the search function and immediately locate the stories that I want to read. Some of the other things I look at online as far as blogs and so forth, uh, currently uh, I'm following Joseph Wang. He's a former Federal Reserve trader. Uh, He has a website called fedguy.com. He's also on Twitter and YouTube if you want to follow him there. But um, I found him to be a pretty interesting resource that I've been reading a lot more recently. Uh, I follow the Atlanta Fed. Uh, I, I look at their GDP now information. It's just a great update that they put out weekly to get a feel for how the economy's doing. And something else I'm using lately uh, for occasional research and articles is something called realclearmarketing.com. Uh, it's one of these catch-all websites that allows you to quickly look at different stories or analysis and so forth. And every once in a while, I'll find a little, a little nugget of good information out there. Uh, I mentioned this earlier in terms of online resources, but FRED, which is the St. Louis Federal Reserve's economic database, is a great resource. And I use that frequently when I'm looking for more quantitative or statistical data. Uh, that'll be something I'll use when I'm doing uh, research in particular. On the banking front, Uh, Some of the places I follow right now are the American Bankers Association, the ABA, uh, the ICBA, the Credit Union Times, the CUNA. Those things immediately come to mind. Uh, Bankdirector.com, which is the Bank Director uh, magazine. I I like reading some of the articles there. Somebody else that I follow online is Jeff Marsico uh, or Marsico. I can never get the name right, but he's the president of the Kafafian Group. And um, he does a, a blog called jeffforbanks.com. And uh, there's some really good articles there every once in a while as well. Uh, 
Some of the other things that I follow, people that I follow, um, and I, this will move and change as I'm as I'm looking for certain things. But on LinkedIn or Twitter and so forth, uh, right now I'm following people like Jim Bianco, uh, Diane Swank, uh, Nick Timmerhouse, the reporter from the Wall Street Journal, the Fed Whisperer, right? Mohammed El Arian, Gregory Farinello, and Jack Hubbard. Um, those are some of the names that I follow there. And, and one thing I'll mention. Uh, LinkedIn, you've heard me mention that I'm out there quite frequently. If you really haven't had a chance to get out there, I'd recommend checking it out. LinkedIn is so much more than a job hunting website or, you know, business social networking. What I have found is really helpful is being able to connect with people out there, but also follow others who are great sources of information because these people are going to share things with you there. And it allows me to kind of see what they're thinking and some of the resources they're following. And so it helps me in terms of the the quality aspect of the information I'm looking for. Uh, And so that's something that I'd recommend as well. And then finally, there are the podcasts. Not that I'm partial to those or anything, but some of the podcasts I follow um, right now are uh, things like Banking with Interest, which is produced by Rob Blackwell, formerly from the ABA. He's over at Intrafi now. Uh, The Boulder Banking Podcast, which is a podcast put out by the Graduate School of Banking at Colorado. South State Correspondent Bank does one called the Community Bank Podcast, and I've been listening to that periodically. Uh, And then something else I've started listening to more recently, just because it it, uh, allows me to stay on top of things, is Bloomberg Surveillance, which is the audio version of their morning program that they do on Bloomberg Television. So those are some of the resources I'm following now. And as I said, it's a partial list. But uh, if, if those are some names and places to help you, then by all means, check them out. Now, just because I'm following a source doesn't mean that I'm reading or listening to everything they put out. Uh, I apply the earlier point I made about what's in it for me or my institution to narrow down the information that is worthwhile. Also, the review and culling process, the the thinning of the herd, is not a one-time thing. It is an ongoing process, and I'm always adding new resources and dropping ones that I just don't find as valuable over time. So that's always changing. So if you were to come back and ask me in three or six months what I'm following, might be a little different from what I just mentioned to you. All right, let's move on to step number five in this information overload management process. And that is to do your own follow-up when needed. Sometimes I will come across a report or article that discusses a topic I'd like to know more about. And in those situations, I'll do my own research and dig in a little deeper. It's so much easier now than in the early days when I was doing this. Thank you, internet, for that. I find that I don't have to save as much in terms of reports and information when I can utilize what I've heard referred to as just-in-time learning to discover new ideas or refresh old topics. However, I will point out that I don't do this personal follow-up approach with everything because I have to be mindful of what I call rabbit hole syndrome. That's where you start reading about something which leads to something else. So you click through in your reading and then that leads to something else and so on. And the next thing you know, a couple of hours is blown by. So you got to be careful with this. At least I do. But I think there are times where digging a little deeper, it can be really helpful. And uh, frankly, it's, it's part of how I find information that I share with you here on the podcast. And then finally, step number six, have one place to store everything. 
if you are saving information as a reference for later, you know, that nice to have pile I was mentioning earlier, or you find something you know you're going to use uh, for something later, make sure that you store all of that information together so that you're not having to search high and low when you need to find it. I prefer to store things digitally so that it's retrievable on any of my devices. That way I can find it on my laptop, my phone, whatever. It doesn't matter what you use. Uh, and in terms of digital sources, you could use something like Evernote or OneNote uh, or Notion or some other app or filing system. The important thing is just to keep it in one place. I also make sure that the system is searchable, whether that is done by setting up a simple workable folder system, or I combine that with tags, or I have the ability to search documents through optical character recognition. Whatever you do, find something that allows you to be able to search so that when you're looking for information later, you're not having to spend a lot of time to retrieve it. So these are the six steps I used. And by using these, I was able to tame the information beast over time. I cut down on the noise a lot and I make it easier to find information later when I need it. So I hope that you found these tips helpful. And if you have any questions about them or how to begin the process, please let me know. And Matt, thank you for your question. And if you have questions like this, please feel free to drop me an email at chris at bondinvestmentmentor.com. And if you have suggestions for managing the process that have worked for you in terms of information overload, or if I miss something that you're like, hey, don't forget this, please shoot me an email or message me on LinkedIn. Let me know and I will share any tips that I receive. Before we wrap up today, I wanted to share something with you that I think is important, especially with what's been going on in the world of banking lately. Over the past few weeks, I've been talking with many community bankers, and although some of those discussions revolved around investments and portfolio management, I also found myself beginning to put on my treasurer's hat again, a hat that I haven't worn for a couple of years. And the bankers I was talking with had questions on several fronts, and these included things like liquidity management and contingency planning, um, deposit and loan rate setting strategies, interest rate risk management and, and interest rate risk models, um, uh, ALM, asset liability management strategies and improving the ALCO process and derivatives and swaps and so forth. And, and all of these topics were in addition to questions about fixed income securities, portfolio management, and investment strategies. But the one common thread that ran through all of these conversations was the uncertainty of the situation. These days, community bankers are dealing with that now more than ever. And maybe you find yourself in a similar position. As a former community banker who lived through the 2008 financial crisis, I get it. It can be hard enough to manage the day job, but then adding in the bumpy ride caused by more systemic issues, as we'll call it, can be a little unnerving at times. But I'm here to tell you that there are ways to manage through the process. And by ensuring that you have the necessary tools and resources, you can position yourself and your institution to weather whatever storms may come. As someone with 30 years of experience in banking and investments, I have made it my mission to be there to help community bankers. My goal is to be a resource for you and help you navigate these challenging times. So whether you have questions, need guidance, or you just want to chat or even vent, I am here for you. 
So please don't hesitate to reach out to me if you have any questions or concerns. As I said earlier, you can email me at chris at bondinvestmentmentor.com or shoot me a message over on LinkedIn. Consider me your virtual treasurer, standing by and ready to help. And I look forward to hearing from you and assisting you in any way I can, because that's what mentors do. Well, I hope that you found the information we covered in this episode today to be helpful, and I'm glad you stopped by and checked in. Bond Investment Mentor is written and produced by me, Chris Nelson, and the information, views, and opinions expressed during the podcast belong solely to myself. Any ideas and strategies contained within the podcast are for educational and informational purposes only and do not constitute investment, accounting, or legal advice. If you have questions regarding anything I covered today, please email me at chris at bondinvestmentmentor.com. And if you haven't already, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can subscribe on any of the major platforms or through whatever podcast app that you use. And if you like what you hear, would you please consider leaving a rating or review because it helps others discover and learn more about the podcast. If you're looking for more information about fixed income investing and portfolio management, head right over to the website, bondinvestmentmentor.com. There you will find articles, tips, and resources to help you manage your institution's investment portfolio. And you can learn about the ways in which I can help you become better at what you do as a portfolio manager for your institution. Also, let's catch up on social media. You can follow me on LinkedIn at Christopher Nelson CFA and on Facebook at Bond Investment Mentor. I look forward to catching up with you again real soon. Thanks for stopping by. Have a good one. Bye.